go ahead and open up our Bibles, if you would, to Galatians chapter 1. Before we start, I do want to uh, remind you that we are going through the entire book of Galatians, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, on Wednesday night. That's our Through the Bible. We, of course, we hold that at LCAP, and anybody is welcome, whether you're sitting here or whether you're listening to me by radio, we would invite you every Wednesday at 7 o'clock. If you want to come early, most people do, and so we have a little time of fellowship and, and a cup of coffee and maybe a cookie or two. Not that I need them, but it's a great opportunity if you've never been through the Bible, and so many Christians, believe it or not, have not, word for word. And so that's the, the, the beauty of it, because as we go through the Word of God, then on Sunday morning, of course, we'll be taking our sermon from what it is that we've already studied. So I'm excited about that. Jesus was the one who said, if a man was to place his hand to the plow and then look back, he's not fit for the kingdom of God. Paul the Apostle, in dealing with the church in Galatia, runs into this problem. And as we go through the book of Galatians, you're going to hear Paul say some very straightforward, and maybe some would even say harsh things. But I would contend it's because of his great love for the gospel according to grace. As we look at our chapter, let's go ahead and read verses. We're going to start in verse 1, or excuse me, in chapter, verse 6. We're going to go through 12. Paul writes to the church there in Galatia, or all the churches actually in Galatia. He says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him, if you're taking notes, mark him, that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you, who would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I again now, if any man preach unto you any other gospel than that you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. The territory of Galatia, both northern and southern, contained many churches that Paul had founded on his first missionary journey there into Asia Minor. And they were generally comprised of both Romans or Gentiles and Jews. Paul's purpose in writing this particular epistle was to confront false teaching that had slowly but surely crept into the churches, seeking to undermine the faith of the Gentile converts by insisting that they be circumcised and keep the law in order to be saved, effectively making them Jews before they were to become Christians. This is an old heresy. It's, it's nothing new, and it, and it started way back then, actually prior to this, really. 
But the churches in Galatia really began to embrace this mixture of grace and works, which is not grace at all. It would seem that on the surface that these false teachers, these false prophets, basically had two things that they were trying to accomplish. The first was to undermine the Galatian church's confidence in Paul's divinely commissioned apostleship. They wanted to ruin his reputation, in other words. And secondly, they wanted to subvert the teaching of Paul, that a man is saved by grace alone through faith alone. That's what they were trying to undermine, trying to destroy. In Paul's salutation, it's immediately evident to any serious Bible student that his expressions of thanks and, and praise that are so often accompanied in Paul's salutations, uh, such as what you would find in Romans and 1 Corinthians and Philippians, Colossians and Thessalonians, when you read those, you, you see these great praises that Paul heaps on them and these thanksgiving to God. They're evidently missing here. They're blatantly not there. Paul says nothing when it comes to the thanksgiving when addressing these churches. Paul said he marveled. He was astounded, some of your Bibles might say, astonished that they were so soon removed from him. Now I want to point out to you that Paul doesn't say that he was shocked that they were removed. Some of you might remember, I'll throw this one in for free. Back in the gospel, Jesus gave the parable of the mustard seed. You remember that, right? And he said that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds, but it, would, it grows into a very big bush, and the birds come and nest in its branches. You remember that? In hermeneutics, there's certain things that stand for certain things, representation, and birds always represent sin. Jesus, in his parable of the mustard seed was talking about the church and all he was trying to get us to see was that there would be sin in the church and we find that even today that there is heresy false teaching within the body of Christ and it's sad but Paul says he wasn't surprised that they were removed because basically it was foretold by Jesus Christ himself that some would depart from the faith we're going to see that later but what he's surprised about, what he was shocked about, was that they were so soon removed. Do you see that? And what were they removed from? From him that had called them into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Paul made it clear that in turning to anything other than Jesus is to turn away from Jesus. It's important to realize that Jesus is the one who called you. He is the one who called you. Even in the Gospels, we find Jesus calling his disciples. Jesus said, come and follow me there in Matthew 4, 19. And then he said, if any man will follow me, let him pick up his cross and follow me there in Mark chapter 10. So often we can forget that it's Christ who opened our eyes. It was Jesus who opened your knowledge you remember when he was with his disciples there after he had risen, he took them up on the, a hill and it says, and then opened he their understanding to the scriptures. It's Christ that gives us the enlightenment. It's God who opens us to awakens us that we might know and understand and believe the gospel. It's he that does that. It's Jesus who has called us to this glorious gospel of grace. 
who has justified us freely and reconciled us to God. Time has a way, though, as you well know, of dulling the memory. Especially when there's outside influences manipulating the situation in order to help you forget. Paul made it clear in Corinthians that you are saved by the gospel as long as you keep in memory what he preached unless, he said, you have believed in vain. Now, in reality, what Paul was saying was that you must cling to the sufficiency of all that Jesus accomplished on your behalf. That's what it means to believe. You know, the word belief has two separate meanings in the Greek. When you go to the book of James, so many people say, well, Doug, I believe in God. I'm sure you've had people tell you that when you've tried to witness, oh, I believe in God, even though their life doesn't show it, you see. When James, a half-brother Jesus, he said, you believe that there's one God, you do well. The devil also believes and trembles. The word belief there in James means to acknowledge, to assent with the mind that something is true. And that's what most people mean when they say, I believe in Jesus. They're assenting that they believe that Jesus existed. But in John 3, 16, he says, Whosoever believeth on him would not perish but have everlasting life. Well, that word's a little bit different because there it means to believe in. It means to rely on, to trust in, and to cling to all that Jesus has accomplished on your behalf. The all-sufficiency of what Jesus Christ has done. Paul marveled that the Galatians were so soon removed from him who called them unto the grace of Christ. I've always liked to use the acronym for grace. It makes it easier to understand what God has taught us, and that is it means God's riches at Christ's expense. And I really do believe that that acronym accurately and succinctly explains the gospel. God's riches at Christ's expense. You see, your inheritance in Christ, all that God has promised to you was achieved by Jesus and has no place in anybody else's credit. It's him alone. He's the one who done it. The law required perfection in order for any of us to have a standing with God in order for any to have a hope of heaven. It required the sacrifice of a perfect lamb. The scriptures tell us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The problem, my friends, as you well know, is that no man was able to do it. Nobody could do it. No one, was, no one ever could have done it. All men are flawed. All men have come short of the glory of God, as Romans chapter 3 says. The prophet Isaiah said this, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Thus no man could have ever obtained to the requirements of perfection that God demanded. Thus God himself in the person of Jesus Christ left heaven and took upon himself that form of a servant. He came in that form of a man and did for man that which man could not do for himself. It's been said that Jesus paid a price that he did not owe because we owed a price that we could not pay. 
Jesus made it clear in the Gospels that his purpose in coming was not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law, to keep perfectly, both physically and spiritually, all 613 laws that God demanded for perfection. That's what he came to do, and he did that for you. Matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 10, he says, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. Most people think that the Bible is a book, and it is a book. But it's a book that's made up of 66 different little books or letters, if you will. Jesus said, in the volume of that, in the volume of that book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. In the book of Romans, there in chapter 5, Paul said that it is the life of Christ that saves us pointing to the perfect, sinless life of Jesus Christ in keeping the law for all of mankind. We are also told that you're bought with a price there in 1 Corinthians. And that happened, my friends, on the cross of Calvary when Jesus poured out his blood and purchased you with his sacrifice. When Jesus suffered and died, as the perfect spotless lamb of God for all of mankind. He then proved his divinity three days later when he rose from the grave. Thus the gospel of grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Paul said that the Galatians had removed themselves from the one who had called them to the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not a gospel, he said wasn't really a gospel. The word gospel means good news, as you well know. God's riches at Christ's expense, that's good news. Hmm. Jesus doing it all for you and then imputing his righteousness to you and assuring you a glorious inheritance in heaven, that's good news. That's the grace of God. However, what's being preached by these false teachers that Paul's dealing with was anything but good news. There's nothing good about it. In reality, it was a perversion of the gospel of Christ. Paul made it clear that they had three agendas that they were trying to achieve and that stood out when you heard this false gospel. The first thing was that it was illegitimate. Paul called it another gospel, but then he said, which is not another. Secondly, Paul said, that it was not good news because it troubled you. He said there's some that trouble you. And thirdly, Paul said that it was a distortion of the gospel. It was a perversion of the genuine. Paul recognized this different gospel was not actually another gospel at all because the gospel, according to grace, places all the expense of it upon the back of Jesus Christ. Thus, our acronym, God's Riches at Christ's Expense. But this other gospel, which is not a gospel, he said, subtly but effectively places the expense firmly on the back of man. Thus, I personally have given it an acronym. I've always called it the Gospel of Graham. G-R-A-M-E, God's riches at man's expense or exercise. Oh, it's this, it sounds 
relatively the same. Kind of has some of the same words, the same lingo. I mean, in reality, there's only one letter difference. But what a difference that one letter makes. It's been said that the difference between a human and chimpanzees is that humans lack a mere two genes. But look at the difference that those two genes make. It's the difference between a cognizant individual and a, and a person of, you know, a child of God and an animal. Subtle difference, but things that are profound. Paul said that there were some that were troubling you. It's important to know, my friends, that these false gospels don't just happen. People bring them in. They're brought in by people, false teachers. Sometimes even those that bring them in are sincere, maybe even charismatic. They're sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. But I want to remind you of the words of Martin Luther, and here's what Martin said. The great reformer said, Note the resourcefulness of the devil. Heretics do not advertise their errors. Murderers, adulterers, thieves disguise themselves. So the devil masquerades all the devices and activities. He puts on white to make himself look like an angel of light. He is astoundingly clever to sell his patent poison for the gospel of Christ. Paul made it clear that there were those, he said, who wanted to distort or to pervert the good news of Jesus. And I have to admit, it's hard for some of us who are believers in the gospel of grace to understand why anyone would want to pervert it and to change it. But I submit to you that the main reason is because the gospel is inherently offensive to mankind. In fact, the Apostle Paul would say that Jesus Christ, who is the author and finisher of your faith, would be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to all who would come. It deeply offends the nature of man. And the reason that it offends is because it states emphatically, my friends, that you have nothing to do with it. Thus, it offends our pride. It says that we need a Savior. It says we cannot save ourselves. It allows you no credit for your salvation. It is all the work of Jesus Christ. Secondly, the gospel offends our wisdom. Because it says that we're saved by something that many consider foolishness. Thus the scriptures say that the preaching of the cross to them that perish is foolishness. Thirdly, the gospel offends our knowledge. It calls me to believe something that goes against scientific knowledge and even my personal experience. And that is that a dead man rose from the dead and received a glorified body and that will never die again. Those are just a few reasons why it offends mankind or why man wants to distort it. Why there are so many who want to pervert the gospel of grace. But Paul, not once, but twice, you need to make note of that, gave dire warning to those who were promoting the gospel of Graham. Look at verses 8 and 9 again. He says, but though we 
or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. And I can only imagine when Paul said that, he didn't say it in a calm voice. I'm sure that had he been there in person, he would have been yelling it to the top of his voice. I'm sure, though, that there are some, upon hearing Paul's demanding, if you will, that these false teachers be condemned, placing a double curse upon them, I'm sure that there are those who would say, well, where's the love in that? You know, Paul wasn't just calling for the condemnation and the cursing of the message. He was calling for the cursing of the messenger. But I would submit to you that it actually, Paul's statement exemplifies his love for those who possibly would be lost. For those souls who were in danger of hellfire. You see, if a gospel is false, it has no ability to save the lost. Thus, Paul was doing all that he could, making his statements as strongly as he could to keep anyone and everyone from boarding a ship that was assuredly going to sink. The reason that Paul defended the gospel so vehemently The reason he promoted the gospel of grace so graciously and attacked the gospel of Graham so fervently was because Paul was not seeking to please men. Paul wanted to please God. Paul refused to shape his message to please his audience. I remember recently, maybe it's been a year or so ago, I know of a pastor from a denomination who told me that they had been told that they should not use certain adjectives, certain words in their sermon, lest they should offend somebody. And I remember telling him at the time, well, they don't want to listen to me preach because I don't care. I love people. If I didn't love people, I wouldn't be doing what I do. But if I wasn't a servant of Christ, then I would certainly tell you what you wanted to hear. But because I am, as Paul said, then you speak the truth in love. Some would say that Paul wasn't being very loving. Well, he was being loving. He was concerned for those who would be lost. He wasn't trying to please men. He was wanting to please God. He refused to adjust his message. And I do think it's clear that from the Scriptures that Paul was making a stark contrast between himself and those who were bringing a different gospel. I believe Paul saw this different gospel as a man-pleasing gospel. And I think we see that today. Because the gospel of Graham exalts man. The gospel of Graham gives credence to man's ability. It gives praise to man's performance. It justifies man's foolish attempt to reconcile himself to God through his own endeavors or his own doings. Thus it appeals to man's pride and to man's sensibility. There have always been preachers, my friends, who have sought popular 
acclaim above all else. Many today are seeking their own popularity other than anything else. Thus they use slick words and fancy schemes, you would, to avoid the words that would be offensive. They stay far from that because their main objective is to please their audience. The Apostle Paul warned us of this departure from the truth in 2 Timothy in chapter 4. He says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. When Paul had been a proponent of what he called the Jews' religion, one of his purposes was to please men. Even in his persecution of the church, he was pleasing those who had sent him from Jerusalem with letters to arrest any if he found them who were of that way. Having become a follower, a disciple, and an apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul was no longer interested in pleasing men. And even went on to say that if he were still pleasing men, he would not be the servant, or actually in the Greek, the bondservant of Jesus Christ. Unlike many preachers today, Paul was seeking to please God, not man. Unfortunately, there are many who stand in the pulpit, my friends, who have been charged with the responsibility of proclaiming the gospel, who have fallen into the trap of trying to be popular rather than faithful. If you're going to be a servant of Christ, you must be faithful to the gospel of grace. Paul wanted them to know that the gospel of grace, which he preached, was not according to man. He didn't receive it of man, nor was he taught it by any man. And it is ironic, I think, today, that one of the arguments that is so frequently given in defense of not believing is because the gospel is man-made. I find that ironic. Because the Bible says just the opposite. All the people who were engaged in writing it said just the opposite. The Bible was written by men. This is true. Many people misunderstand what is meant. And many people, unfortunately, will miss heaven because of this misunderstanding. The apostle Peter made it clear that though God used men to write the Bible, the message that came through them was not of them. Second Peter chapter 1, he says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. He also tells us that the scriptures were inspired by God. In the Greek, the word is theonoustos. It's, it's God-breathed. So it's from God. Oh, he uses man. He's got no choice but to use flawed vessels. But the message is God's. The gospel of grace is not a product of man. It is not the product of man's philosophy or of man's reasoning. Paul received the gospel of grace through the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul's relationship to the gospel is a bit unique. The fact that you and I are sitting here this morning, the fact that we are believers in Jesus Christ and a believer in the gospel of grace is because we heard the good news through somebody else. Somebody preached it to us. 
Somebody passed it along, you see. That's why we're here. In Romans 10, he says, How then shall they call upon him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. That's how we came here. That's how we came to be sitting in this place. But Paul was not normal in this respect. Paul received the gospel that he preached in a dramatic and direct revelation when he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. Because of his great love for the people and for you and me, the apostle speaks even today and warns us not to be removed from God by embracing the gospel of Graham instead of the gospel of grace. For you see, if you do, you will forfeit, as Paul will go on to say, God's riches because man's expense, listen to me, man's expense, man's exercise, man's doings, man's endeavors to secure, to secure favor with God can never succeed. It can't do it. Because we're all sinners. Thus the scripture declares there's none righteous. No, not one. You must receive the unearned, unmerited favor of God through that which Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. His perfect life, his sacrifice, his resurrection. The fact that he sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you. That we are totally clinging to everything that he did. All that he has accomplished. The Bible calls it abiding in Christ. To abide, you have to abide in the perfect work of Christ. You must receive the unearned, unmerited favor of God in order to be justified with God through faith alone in His Son, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for you, that if you will simply believe, you will have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we love You. And Lord, even now, I pray for those, Lord Father, sitting here and those listening to this message by whatever means, the challenge is to you, my friend. What gospel have you been believing or have you believed at all? Have you been trying by your own endeavors to gain God's favor? Or are you trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, all that he has done for you? I challenge you this day to firmly bow at the cross of Jesus Christ. Give up your own endeavors and place all your efforts and all your exercises upon the back of him who's able to do it perfectly and to bring you to Christ, to God, and reconcile you, make you whole, and to deliver you from this present evil world. Lord, have your way with him this morning. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. Amen.
Well, 